Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, Today we're focusing on the first five verses of chapter 4. Very appropriate this this be in the Sunday after Thanksgiving because a key theme of these verses is the importance of gratitude. Last week we looked at the last three verses of chapter 3, and those verses really tell us Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Timothy. Here's what he said in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul has been reinforcing to Timothy some basics of what need to be emphasized in a local church. He's spoken about teaching, uh, sound doctrine, giving attention to prayer, uh, placing biblically qualified men in the roles of elder and deacon, and his descriptions of the church show us why all these things are so important and how they fit because first the church is the household of God. That reminds us that the church is God's special dwelling place, that we are his sanctuary. And being God's household also reminds us that we are his family. We have been born not just once, we've been born again. And that speaks of a complete transformation of life from sinner to saint. But of course it also speaks of the fact that we have been born into the family of God. We are his children. We are part of his household. Paul also tells us that believers are the church of the living God. We're the assembly that has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We belong to him. We are his treasured possession. It's a church of the living God. We are his possession. We are his treasure. We don't serve the dead gods of false religion or philosophies of man. We're the church of the living God. And finally, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. God has revealed his word, and as his church, we're called to believe it, to uphold it, to put into practice what it says. We're called to rightly proclaim, rightly speak the truth. And then in verse 16, Paul uses one of the common confessions of the early church, probably one of their hymns. And uh, uses it to summarize, really, the focal message that the church of a living God is supposed to proclaim. So again, verse 16 says this, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So these phrases here actually speak of the Son of Man Son of God coming into the world as a man to accomplish salvation for sinners. They speak of his resurrection. They speak of the glorious witness given to Christ by the angels, as well as the gospel witness given to Christ by uh, by the church among the nations. They speak about how Jesus has been believed on for salvation by sinners in the world. They also speak of the fact that he's been exalted as the reigning king in the heavenlies. So these are just some really glorious truths that Paul writes about the church of the living God. And then he follows this up with some sobering realities that the household of God has to deal with. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron 
Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So this is really quite a paragraph. I mean, after Paul has just expounded these great truths about what the church is, he has some very direct things to say about challenges that the church of the living God has to face. So our first main point is this. In the midst of such glorious things being spoken of the church as the pillar and support of the truth, believers are exhorted to be on guard against deceitful doctrines that are sure to come. So Paul clearly intends for us to see a connection and a contrast with what he had just said. Because the first word in 1 Timothy 4.1 is the word uh, now or but. He's making a contrast. He's making a connection. He wants to keep the church rightly grounded. The verses at the end of chapter 3 are just so encouraging to me. I mean, I love being reminded of the great work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners. I love being reminded of the fact that this is a salvation that's for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I love being reminded of the fact that all dominion has been given to our Savior, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and that his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And I think all those things were just included in that common confession. And Paul obviously gets great pleasure out of those things as well. But he also wants to remind us that just because our Lord and Savior is the reigning king, and he is, doesn't mean that there aren't many enemies who do their best to overthrow. He just spoke about how the Spirit of God vindicated Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. Now in verse 1, Paul speaks of something concerning that the Spirit has explicitly revealed. So the first part of verse 1, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. So from this verse, we see this next point. The reality is that some people who profess to be Christians will be deceived and will fall away from the faith. So when did the Spirit explicitly reveal this? Well, it could be when Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. Because in that, in that parable, uh, we are, the, the idea is that tares are, are a weed that looks similar to wheat. And the teaching was that there will be people within the church who for a while look to be true believers. But they aren't. They're tares. And Judgment Day will, will make that clear. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 11, that in the days leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, he says many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. The Spirit also revealed to Paul himself that there were going to be problems very specifically in the Ephesian church where Timothy is. So this is what he said to the elders of the Ephesian church. This is in Acts 20, verse 28 to 30. It says, be on guard for yourself. And again, he's speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, 
men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I mean, this, in fact, really was the reason that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to to deal with these savage wolves, as he describes them. Now, the phrase latter times or last latter days, last days, technically are the days between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. So, seeing this kind of departure from the faith is not necessarily a sign that Jesus is getting ready to immediately come back right now. Because these things have been happening in various ways since the first century. It's interesting to note that the word for times here, where he says latter times, that word times is literally the word for seasons, kairos. It's literally the word for seasons. So there will be seasons when this falling away from the faith will be especially common. Paul and Timothy were in one of those seasons. The church at Ephesus went in one of those seasons. I think it'd be safe to say that our nation is in one of those seasons. Paul then tells us what it is that contributed to these people who profess to be believers falling away from the faith. He says in the second part of verse 1 that they were paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So from this, we see our next point that these false teachings need to be seen for what they are, doctrines of demons. Here we see that there are deceitful or seducing spirits in contrast to the Holy Spirit who was spoken of in the preceding verses. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the scriptures. That's the truth that the church is responsible to to hold on to. But in contrast, these deceitful spirits specialize in errors and lies. And these deceitful spirits especially work with men and women who are being hypocritical in their faith. It's the deceitful spirits who cast doubt in our minds on whether the scriptures can really be trusted. It's the deceitful spirits that give us alternative ideas so that a person can really continue to embrace a sinful way of life and feel like everything's okay. It's the deceitful spirits who tell us that we should go with our own desires instead of putting sin to death. It's the deceitful spirits who take scriptural truth and distort it so that we become proud of good works instead of humbly leaning on the transforming grace of God in our lives. Paul is being very upfront, very forthright here. He's saying that when we come face to face with false teaching, we should consider that the person doing the teaching has been paying attention, whether they know it or not, to deceitful spirits. In other words, they're not just making an honest mistake. If that was true, they would turn from the false teaching whenever it was brought to their attention. But if the teaching is part of the doctrines of demons, they're going to dig in and they will not change, even when it's made clear to them that the scriptures say something different. So this is a clear warning. Yes, it's a warning to be alert to false teaching from those who have fallen away from the faith. But it's also a warning for us to be on guard that it doesn't happen to us. I mean, we need to persevere in in pursuing that mystery of godliness that is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then Paul 
further says the problem, of not, the problem is not only deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, he also tells us this. These false doctrines are spread by people whose consciences have been hardened because of their embrace of things that are known lies. Again, let's read verse 1 and 2. The, the spirit, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So these deceitful lies not only come from deceitful spirits, they also come from people who have been hardened in their hypocrisy. It's spoken of as the hypocrisy of liars. So these are men and women who are hypocrites. They claim to believe the truth of the gospel, but in reality, they do not. In fact, you get the impression that they know they don't believe what they're saying. They know it's a lie. They know that that's what they're teaching, things that actually are not true, but they teach them anyway deliberately and purposefully leading people away from the truth. Well, why is that? Paul said it's because they've been seared in their conscience as with a branding iron. The image here is how a hot iron cauterizes the skin when it touches it, and the effect is to harden that skin so that it's no longer sensitive to touch. God is the one who gives us our conscience, Romans 2.15 speaks of the work of the law being written on the conscience of men. And when it works correctly, it affirms us when we're doing the right thing, or it condemns us when we're doing something that is wrong. But when the conscience is hardened, there is no longer any sense of guilt or regret when doing something or condoning something that we know is morally wrong. The person with a hardened conscience is no longer moved or inclined towards sound doctrine. Instead, they become vulnerable to the doctrines of demons. Paul's warning Timothy, the church, and us to be on guard against these hardened liars because even if they claim to be Christian, they are in fact paying attention to this evil spirit's doctrines of demons. Now, it's at this point that Paul gets specific about what the deceitful doctrines that were common in Ephesus, what they were. So verse 3 is this. He speaks of men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. What Paul is describing here is really is known as asceticism. Asceticism can be defined as like a severe discipline and an avoidance of all forms of self-indulgence, typically done for religious, region, re religious reasons. Now, at first, you might think that sounds like maybe a good way to grow in godliness, but it isn't. So our second main point deals with this. Asceticism is a false teaching that, that fools people into thinking they are being spiritual when, in fact, they are denying the scriptures. It is an attempt to obtain holiness by what is being given up. To obtain holiness by what you refrain from, by what you're giving up. Now, this does not mean that there's not a place for self-discipline. There is. 
In fact, if you just look down a few verses, down to verse 7, Paul specifically says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul is not opposed at all to spiritual discipline for the purpose of godliness. There is an important place for saying no to sin, for putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. There is a place for disciplining ourselves to spend time in the scriptures, to spend time in prayer and fellowship with fellow believers, uh, worship together with fellow believers. The problem with asceticism is that it leads us to say no to good things, things that God has given to be used and enjoyed. This fools people into thinking that they are being spiritual when in fact they are living in sin. It's a tricky thing that we have to be careful about. Paul has been emphasizing the need for true godliness. Part of that emphasis is to point out things that can appear to be spiritual when in fact they aren't. The two things these false teachers were trying to get Christians to give up were marriage and certain foods. So let's look at marriage first. Paul tells us very clearly, it is a false teaching to forbid and distort the institution of marriage as a means of godliness. This is something that was beginning to take root in the early church. For example, there was the Qumran community, the Essenes were a group of that, and they wrote about rejecting any pleasure, any kind of pleasure as something evil. And one of the things that led them to do was to really severely downplay marriage, even to neglect it. Later in the first century and second century was a false teaching known as Gnosticism. This teaching regarded anything physical, including the human body, as being evil. So a person, if a person was going to be truly godly, they must live above the physical, so to speak, which would include an ascetic lifestyle, avoiding anything that was that satisfied or was pleasing to the body in any way. And this was beginning to be an issue in Ephesus. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 about two men who had gone astray from the truth. They were Hymenaeus and Philetus. They were saying that the resurrection of believers had already occurred. Now, one commentator, Philip Towner, suggests that maybe in light of that, that maybe they were expecting a new order of some sort, that they believed that this old order had passed away with the resurrection and that marriage and the eating of certain foods should be a part of that old order that's put aside. After all, Jesus did say there would be no marriage in heaven. So that could be part of what's going on in Ephesus here. We know that some of the early church fathers like Tertullian and Ambrose were very uncomfortable with the sexual relationship in marriage. We know that Augustine himself frequently told married couples they should abstain from sex. So this kind of thing was beginning to get a foothold. Um, this was an area that believers were having were misunderstanding. Now we must also say that Paul's rebuke about, on those forbidding marriage does not mean that everyone will or should get married. In 1 Corinthians 7, 
Paul spoke of the blessings there are in being single. It gives the opportunity to have, to have a focus on the Lord that you can't have in the same way when you're married. And so the idea is that every season of singleness, whether it's short or longer, is really a blessing of God. But these teachers were saying that if you reject marriage, then you will automatically be more spiritual. There's even a pride associated with pointing out to others the things that you have given up that makes you a better Christian than them. In our day, the focus is more on distorting marriage. Our laws, for example, claim that two men can be married. That's a lie. We use the word marriage for there, but that's not true. They claim two women can be married. That's a lie. Our culture also says that living together without being married really can be superior to marriage. That's a lie. So we forbid biblical marriage by replacing it with lies and perversions of marriage. Paul calls this doctrines of demons. It's also true that God gave marriage as a picture, as a testimony to the gospel. Paul tells us clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. It's a picture of the church's love and respect and submission to their Savior. So when you forbid and distort marriage, you are speaking lies about what the gospel is because they're connected. Forbidding marriage is really saying sinners don't need a Savior. We're fine without a Savior. If men don't need women and women don't need men in marriage, then that's saying sinners don't need a Savior. That is why these things can be described so harshly as doctrines of demons. The issue of forbidding and distorting marriage is deeply sinful. The other area of asceticism that Paul brings up is this. Point B, it's a false teaching to embrace food legalism. <laughs> food legalism as a means of godliness. In verse 3, Paul further speaks of men who advocate abstaining, it says from food. I mean, you've you got to eat something, so there's got to be certain foods that they especially have in mind here. This may, this may be a focus on not eating meat. Um, there were issues here on whether it was appropriate to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Of course, idolatry was so common, especially in Ephesus and other places. Idolatry was so common. And so the meat that had been sacrificed to idols could be bought at a discount price. Most of you, like me, are really looking for discounts. Could be bought at a discount price in the, in the marketplace, but is it right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? Some people had a real issue with that, and Paul wrote about that in some other places. Well, you can really see how those who chose to refrain from buying the discounted meat could easily look down on those who are eating that contaminated stuff. There's a pride that could easily come there. 
So basically what he's saying there, just because you don't eat that kind of meat doesn't mean you're more spiritual than the ones who do. Some have believed, for example, that vegetarianism is a more holy way to live. And those who, people can go so far to that that they seem to wear vegetarianism as a badge of honor. It doesn't make you more holy to be a vegetarian. It just doesn't. There are certainly legitimate reasons for limiting our diet. I mean, there are. I mean, there are certain things that you, it's just not wise for you to eat. I found this out the hard way when uh, Austin and I were in New Orleans, and I'd never had crawfish pie before or alligator. My body did not like that. (laughs) I had some pretty extreme reactions to those things, but they tasted great. Anyway, there are, there are reasons to limit our diets depending on, you know, different things. And, 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 and you've, a lot of us have discovered those things as you, as you get older, things that it's just not wise for you to eat those things. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about, you know, those kind of things. There's also a place for fasting in the Christian life. I mean, God can use fasting to help us be more focused in our prayers, about, especially about particular issues we're praying about. Paul's not talking about that either. He's not saying, you know, he's, he's not putting aside and saying fasting is a bad thing. He's talking about using foods that we eat or refrain from eating as causing us to feel spiritually superior to others. Your diet does not make you more godly than someone else. That's a real temptation that Paul puts in the category of doctrines of demons. Don't be a food legalist. Now, those are the problems that Paul identifies. The solution to those temptations is simple and genius at the same time. So our third main point is this. The key to dealing with the false teaching of of asceticism is God-centered gratitude. It's really quite remarkable how much emphasis Paul puts here on just being grateful. Now, as parents, of course, we teach our kids to say thank you, which is right. We should say thank you. That's a right thing. That's a good thing. But what Paul is saying here goes beyond having good manners. Look again at verses 1 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So in dealing with the false teaching of forbidding marriage and certain foods, Paul makes this very important point. Next point on your outline. God has created both marriage and food to be gratefully enjoyed by those who embrace the truth. To be gratefully enjoyed enjoyed the way to understand marriage appropriately is to understand it from God's perspective God created marriage in the Garden of Eden that's when it was brought into 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 being as far as uh, institution of man he brought Adam and Eve together as husband and wife before sin came into the world 
it's common sometimes to hear people deny that God is the one who brought marriage in. I mean, oftentimes people argue, say, no, that's just a cultural thing. People are just, as, you know, as, as cultures begin to develop, they just realize this is probably a better way to do things, you know, and to, you know, to, to have marriage, to have families and so forth. Cultures did not create family. Cultures did not create marriage. God is the one who brought that into existence. Paul makes it clear in verse 3 and 4 that God created marriage. It comes from him. He's the one who ordained that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God is the one who ordained that. Because God created marriage, we read in verse 3 that it's to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So as Christians... We know that marriage is of God. We believe and know that truth. We know that is what the scripture teaches. And it's the teaching of scripture that tells us what is right, not just in the case of marriage, but in anything. But here is if she is you as marriage. Now, I've been trying to think through, this is an interesting phrase, that it should be gratefully shared in. I've been trying to think through how to apply that. Again, I think it's, there's, there seems to be levels here of gratitude that he's trying to get us to see. And I'm going to give you some thoughts here. How do you gratefully share in marriage? How do you do that? Well, my thought is this. It's thinking about, for me, it's thinking about the characteristics of my wife that I'm grateful for. So I'm just going to mention a few. I'm not going to go overboard on this, Robin, but I'm grateful for her consistent walk with the Lord. I'm grateful for her regular reading of scripture and prayer. I'm grateful how she loves me. I'm grateful for how she loves our family. I'm grateful for the kind of mother she has been and continues to be. I'm grateful for the kind of grandmother she is. Very grateful for the way she cooks. I'm grateful for her creativity and decorating and I'm grateful that she's very pretty to look at. I could go on. That's as far as I'm going to go. I was trying to think, how do you gratefully share in? There's probably other ways to apply that. That's what came to my mind. You guys may have some different ideas. But we're, we're supposed to do the same thing with food. We're supposed to, food is created by God. How do we gratefully share in food? I mean, there's such a variety and the kind of food that God has provided. And in the Old Testament, of course, there were foods that were clean and some were unclean. So unclean were foods that were not supposed to be uh, used, eaten. But in the New Testament, of course, Jesus has declared all foods to be clean and proper for us to enjoy. So we gratefully share in the food God has given us in the same way. We're thankful for the daily bread that he provides. We're thankful that we have enough to eat. It also encourages different ways to cook and to prepare foods. Cookbooks and unique recipes are really helpful in this kind of thing. Taking time when we eat to enjoy the taste, to enjoy the flavors, to enjoy the textures. Those are just some ways, I think, of gratefully sharing in food. 
I mean, Jesus says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Teach us to pray that way. And I think that's a legitimate prayer to pray. We should pray that prayer ourselves, but expand on it. I mean, that's really just kind of a guide. Expand on your gratefulness for the daily provision that God is giving you, whatever it may be. It's interesting to note here that it says that those who believe and know the truth, those are the ones who will be able to gratefully share. That's what he says. Now, God surely provides good food for those who are not believers, who have not put their faith in the Lord. And it's one, I mean, the provision of food is one of the best ways that God shows himself good, even to those who reject him. You know, I've mentioned this many times. God didn't have to give us taste buds. He gave us taste buds because he's good. Enjoying food is a good thing, and that's from God. The different variety is from God. Those are, I mean, so so just, just the issue of food is a testimony to every person that God is good. And it reminds us of his everyday care. It reminds us of the fact that he's very personally involved in our lives. And there are people who are great chefs who can probably help you with all kinds of great recipes, delicious food. Many are not believers. So the goodness of God for them never comes into the picture. It's never there. It never even crosses their mind that food is something God has given that food is something that should cause them to be grateful to God for his goodness. And so the fact there then is they're using God's provision as if he doesn't exist. And so I hate to say this, but I believe it's true, that when they stand before God, it's going to be one of the things that condemns them because he was so good to them, giving them, and they especially specialize you know, in this particular area, you know, foods and so forth. But they never acknowledged him and the whole thing. That will be something that testifies against them in the final day. I think that's part of the idea. He says it's gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So God has created both marriage and food, like I said, to be gratefully shared in. Now, to build on that, we are further told this that we should remember that all God has created is good and is to be received with gratitude. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. So Paul is reminding us here of what the Lord said in Genesis 1, the last verse of Genesis 1 after creation had been completed. He says, it says, God saw everything he had made. Behold, it was very good. That's what Paul's referring to. This, of course, includes marriage and food, because that's what he's been talking about here. But it also includes trees and flowers and rocks. It includes rivers and oceans and lakes. It includes pets. It includes water, beverages, the sun, the moon, the stars, 24-hour days, the seasons, oxygen, the human body, and all that goes into making the human body work, and so many just miraculous type things. 
He created color, fire. Wouldn't it be amazing, be something to live just in everything was just black and white? Now, I know there's TV shows like that. But at the same time, we're not in black and white. Color is a big part of it. And being able to see color, again, is God is good. Because color is good and enjoyable. Math is a good thing. God created math. Biology, that's a good thing. Words, language, music. The list can go on and on and on. All that God has created is good. And that's a crucial truth when we think about the importance of gratitude. Yes, we're grateful to other people, and we should be. I mean, that should be a regular part of our day is saying thank you, you know, for, to people in different ways. But we also need to be expressing gratitude to God throughout the day. Being people of gratitude actually means that we're growing in our faith. Because the more conscious you are of things to be grateful for, the more you're walking in the fear of the Lord. The more you are, that's worship. Gr- gratitude is an aspect of worship. You may not be singing it in a song, but gratitude is an aspect of worship. And the more we grow in gratitude, the more we are growing in our walk with the Lord. There are so many issues in life that can be significantly addressed by simply receiving things with gratitude. Think about this. People who are controlled by bitterness are not grateful people. You're not going to find a lot of gratitude in someone who's bitter. wonder how they could deal with that. Focus on some gratitude. Gratitude is so helpful when you deal with being downcast, depressed. Gratitude is so helpful when you're dissatisfied with big things in your life. I mean, gratitude is just such a simple thing, but it goes to the heart of some of the biggest issues that we have, that we deal with on a regular basis. Now, it's also very true that people take the good gifts of God. It says all things God created is good. It's very true that people take the good gifts of God and use them in evil, sinful ways. I mean, that's very real. That's very true. But in spite of that, we still need to be people who know how to receive all that God has given us with gratitude. And then Paul makes this final exhortation in verse 5, which says, uh, it is sanctified, well, better than we read verse 4 and 5, everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So here we see this next point. Though marriage and food may seem like ordinary things, Believers grow in godliness through them by understanding this. And this is a quote by Patrick Fairburn. God's word to man warrants him to use the creation gift. Man's word to God acknowledges the gifts and asks his blessing on it. So Paul is giving further exhortation based on the biblical truth that he's just shared. He has condemned the forbidding of marriage and the abstaining of certain foods as being teachings of deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He's pointed out that the truth 
is that these things were created by God. And because they're created by God, they are good and should not be rejected, but instead should be received with gratitude. In other words, make the most out of the good gifts that God has given, and gratitude is key in that. Well, in verse 5, he elaborates on how to receive all things with gratitude. Receiving all things with gratitude is part of our sanctification. It's an important part of our Christian growth. It's an important part of godliness. Paul says this gratitude is sanctified by means of the word of God. It's sanctified by means of the word of God. So, so from Patrick Fairburn's uh, quote, it's the idea here that the word of God warrants to man, tells us that this is God's creation gift and we should use it. So that's how it's sanctioned by the word. The word tells us this is good. So we know that's true. A person's not doing it just because it feels right to him, just because it feels right to his heart. He's doing it because the word of God tells him God's creation is good. And that's the reason it can be received with gratitude. And then Paul also mentions prayer. It's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So because we are sure that the everyday things like marriage and food are good, because God's word tells us so, then we can give thanks for those things to God in prayer. We can ask God's blessing on our marriage in prayer. We can thank the Lord for our daily bread in prayer. And as we do this, we are actively standing against the doctrines of demons that Paul warns us about. I mean, it's just kind of amazing how thanksgiving is so central to the life of the Christian. There is no other group of people on the face of the earth who have more reason to be thankful than Christians. So we should be examples of what it is to be people of gratitude. Lord, we do thank you very much for your word. And we're reminded of what a blessing it is to be a part of your church, what a blessing our Savior is and what he's accomplished as far as salvation, as far as how he rules and just so many things. But at the same time, Paul reminds us it's not always going to be easy. There are going to be things that you have to deal with. People who are trying to cut down your faith, trying to dilute your faith, trying to guide you in different ways, in different directions. We're going to have to deal with that. The people in Paul's day and Timothy's day had to deal with that. We have to deal with it as well. Lord, I thank you that you tell us that your word tells us what is good. It's what you have created and the way you have created to be used. So, Lord, thank you for divining for us what is good. Lord, I thank you for, for just the way you have blessed us in so many ways, just even these two areas, marriage and food. There are so much in each of those areas that are such blessings to us. And so I want to thank you for being such a good God. And, Lord, help us to make the best use of what you have created ourselves. Help us to be people who gladly receive and share in what you have given us. Help us to continue to grow. I've been praying this for myself ever since I've been reading through these verses. Help me to become more consistently grateful in a wider variety of ways. Lord, help all of us in that way. The most important thing we have to be grateful for, of course, is our Savior, Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished on our behalf. 
If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, pray like this be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize that I do not measure up at all. He's given me all kinds of good gifts, and I use them as if he doesn't exist. I know that's not right. Those things are wrong. Lord, help me to be aware of my sin, but also help me to be aware of the Savior. Help me to be aware of the salvation that you have provided for me in Jesus Christ. And I want to receive him as my Savior and my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off. For those who are watching online, can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.